I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and putting history to rights. The podcast that is therapy for historians. I'm public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow historian, Kyle Glover. Hello. So, last episode, we had Zach White, who said to us quite incorrectly that we're scraping the barrel for guests by having him on, and we've taken that to heart. So this week, we are going to the other end of the scale completely. This week, dear listener, we have author, broadcaster, historian, and recipient of the Polish Benimarito Medal, and I do hope I've pronounced that correctly. Claire Molly. Claire, welcome to History Rage. Hello, thank you very much for having me on. You're welcome and thank you very much for jumping through all the various tech hoops that we've had to do over the past few weeks. It's great to have you here. Feeling angry? Um, Mildly. I'm not a particularly angry person but yeah, some things do get my goat. (laughs) You say say that. Helen Mm. Fry said exactly the same thing and is one of the ragiest people we've had on so far. Good. I so, like uh, Helen. Good. It's it's always the quiet ones we have to watch out for. So um, I saw you first to your excellent talk on Eglantoy and Jeb from the first time we appeared at the Chalk Valley History Festival um, and from your books since. I am currently partway through. I didn't get to finish it, I'm afraid, but partway through Women Who uh, Flew for Hitler and I can't put it down. But for our other listener, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career so far. Uh, well, I'm the author of three books, um, The Woman Who Saved the Children, about the founder of Save the Children, who actually hated children, which, um, but uh, she's absolutely fantastic. I mean, she didn't really hate them. She just wasn't particularly fond of them, didn't want any of her own. Thank you very much. I think you don't have to be maternal mm. to care about human rights, children's rights. Yeah. Um, but she was absolutely fantastic and wrote what is now 
UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the most universally accepted human rights instrument in history, but very few people have heard of her. I think if a fella had written that and set up the world's largest international independent children's development agency, by the way, um, people would have heard of him. So um, that's another thing that annoys me. Having said I don't get annoyed, that's one. Uh, And then The Spy Who Loved, that I think we're going to talk a bit more about this evening. And of course, The Women Who Flew for Hitler. So three, but another one I'm working on at the moment. Um, They all focus on women in war. Uh, women responding to and participating in war in very different ways and very different characters and personalities as well. Um, I'll do a bit of TV, a review, have some kids, got a dog, do an odd podcast now and then. <laughs> and that you don't get much more of an odd podcast than this one as well. <laughs> um, so a little bit then, but have you always been kind of author, writer? Uh, no, I've had lots of different things. I have, what have I done? I've been a TEFL teacher, lived overseas, um, did a little bit of that in Poland. And that's partly what got me interested in Polish history. I lived in a town called Bydgoszcz for a short while. Um, And I used to work in international development for Save the Children for quite a few years. And that is what led me to the the subject of my first book. Because I remember there was a a time when the the British government was doing new currency. And they they said they're actually going to put a woman on the coin and a a £20 coin and a £2 note. I thought, fantastic. And in the end, they put um, Jane Austen on both. And I do love Jane Austen and I love her books. But do we need to put her on both the coin and the note? It made me think that the the British government couldn't think of any other British women that were worth celebrating. And there (laughs) are so many out there. So, um, yeah, that's not answering what jobs I've done, is it? But anyhow, no, I haven't (laughs) done that. But I brought all of that experience to this. Excellent. So, well, looking at the looking at the background, then we've got the highlights of your career, which nicely brings us around then to you know where what does get your goat because i can see your your itching to rage you a good three rages out there before we even get to the question so claire please tell us the core question of history rage what do you wish people would just stop believing well I don't I don't I'm not anti people believing things. I want people to pick up books and learn all sorts of things. I don't want to have a go at anyone in particular. But I do think we could be better at acknowledging the reality of women's contribution in times of war. And in particularly, I I do get frustrated by the rather romantic sort of version of female special agents, the sort of almost a fictionalization of what these women actually did. And um, of course, there were many women who served in, in the First World War as well, but also in the Second World War. And I, I feel that usually we're, we're quite good, you know, we're good at celebrating their courage. Yeah. And we're, we're pretty good at recognising when they paid the ultimate sacrifice. And of course, you know, when these women lost their lives, and a number of them did, um, it's very important that we recognise this. But I don't think we're so good at remembering their achievements or how effective they were in their work. So we tend to focus on their their attempts and, and often on their beauty as well, rather than what they achieved. And I think it's a double standard. And actually, women yeah. contributed an awful lot. So this is something that I've tried to uh, tackle quite a bit in my work, the way that we present women in very different terms and that history has consistently presented in very different terms. Yeah, and actually, it's just one thing that I'd read up in um, Women Who Flew for Hitler tonight. Um, that Hannah Reich, for all of her achievements uh, at the time, she was actually kind of a figurehead for for the Berlin Olympics. And yet 
she's photographed and placed on a cigarette card with the basically the German words for our beauties. You know, this is a woman yeah, who's yeah, exactly. One of the few things I've got. I'm not a, I'm not a memorabilia collector, but I did have to get one. I saw it on eBay. It's um, Gabbati um, cigarette collectible cigarette series. I've never seen those words put together like that before. But anyhow, and um, I mean, terrible woman, brilliant pilot, appalling individual, and um, um, we tend not to be able to rate these qualities when it comes to women. I don't know why. Then we're asking, really. Then talking about kind of. Leading into really the uh, the spy who loved, we're going to talk a lot about kind of women SOE agents and the special agents, and yeah, their views as, for want of a better word, just honey traps. I mean, why are we still in in this day and age when we have you know International Women's Day, we have Women's History Month? There there is a there is a lot being done for the history of women, and yet we're still stuck with this idea that clandestine women. Are always working as honey traps. That it's like start with Matahari and uh, and that becomes everyone else. Why is that? Well, there's lots of reasons, aren't there? I mean, partly partly it's just inherent sexism, isn't it? We, um, I mean, both in the past and still today, this is played out in various ways. So, for example, in the past, in the war, women who were employed in these roles were treated very differently, both during and after their service, even though they were sent in to do a lot of the exact same work as their male mm-hmm. colleagues. And so you find that they are marginalised at the time. This is very clear with people like Christina Scarbeck. But then afterwards, you know, why this is perpetuated is you, you look at the the way that even the documents are archived. So when I was working on the women who flew for Hitler, um, I found that, you know, one of the women, so we talked, you talked about Hannah Reif. The other one is Melitta Schiller. She was born on Melitta von Stauffenberg. And she is involved in the biggest plot against Hitler's life, the famous um, von Stauffenberg or 20th July plot, the Valkyrie plot. And she's really at the heart of that. This is one of the most written about episodes of the Second World War. And yet, I've never really read and you know I had never heard of this woman until I started doing my research mm-hmm. because she's she's not mentioned in these histories and I obviously wonder why and one of the things I've discovered was that a lot of the men's papers were sent to the military archives in Germany or even just the Deutsche Museum the National Archive in Germany but the women's papers I mean I got in touch with the von Stauffenberg family and had a fantastic uh, meeting with them which ended up with them very kindly opening up their family collections to me. And among their papers, they had Melissa's handwritten diary from 1943 and 1944, including the 20th July 1944. And it's basically there. It's kind of coded and done with acronyms and things. But it's basically all written in there. And that diary was sent back to her family because she was a woman, you know, basically filed as domestic and sent it over there. And so the women's, the, the evidence of the women's stories are actually dropped at that stage. And then you've got another layer in the writing of history where... Even, for example, going to Christina Scarbeck, who I wrote my book about. Now, I was delighted because a number of different people have picked up on that. And she's appeared in a number of sort of books on collections about different female special agents. And one that came out recently opened up. We had to include Christina Scarbeck because of her beautiful smile. Like, oh, God, that is not. Yeah, But this these are, you know, quite serious, big name people that write this stuff, including that one. And uh, and so we're, it's still being done. It's still being sort of glamorised like this. And now I think there is a lot more focus on the contribution women made. But the way it's looked at, um, it, it's it's either not been told or now it's being told quite poorly. And, and that's reinforced through films, even very modern films as well. 
you know, when you see the men, the men tend to be a special agent and a translator and a pilot and, you know, just about everything else. And the woman's a secretary and a betrayer. You know, that tends oh, yes. to be the line. So, so, I mean, this is why. No, no surprise that most people think that women didn't pay a particularly active or positive role. But actually, when you go back in there, you see people like Christina Scarbeck. She was the first woman to serve as a special agent for Britain in the Second World War. She was also yeah. the longest serving special agent, not just female, but male or female to serve Britain. And she served in three different theatres of the war. She served in occupied Poland. Yeah. She served in Egypt and the Middle East. And then she was parachuted behind enemy lines again in 44 into occupied France. At one point, Churchill referred to her as his favourite spy. And her achievements are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, included securing the defection of an entire German garrison on a strategic pass in the Alps on her own. And then she went down the mountain and managed to secure the release of three of the men that she'd been working with, again, completely on her own, just as before they were due yeah. to get shot. And there is much more. And yet, no, you know, who's heard of Christine Granville or Christina Scarbeck, as she was born? And so these are stories that are there. The history is there. And people think, oh, it's nothing new in the Second World War. Well, it's not new, but it's there. It's just been hidden. So these are the, some of the stories that I want to, you know, get written back into the record. Yeah, and and might I say, doing it very well at the moment as well. Beautifully, beautifully written. I I'm not a great reader. Cards on the you table. Know. There, I am not a great reader. I'm audio books are my yeah. thing, um, but <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm reading through this and it just flows so beautifully. Thank you very much. Super. You normally get me to do the reading and then I report back to him. <laughs> <laughs> you too can read my book. I, I have. He has, oh, yes. We, 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 read, we read one each. Yeah. Excellent. So what sort of person, and particularly what sort of woman, would be chosen for this? these sort of clandestine activities that um, organisations like SOE were getting up to? Well, I mean, you said it first, what sort of person? The women were recruited on exactly the same basis as the men. So, I mean, there are very specific skills they're looking for, things like language skills. If you can be working behind enemy lines in an enemy-occupied country in Europe or further afield, you need to be able to speak the language. Ideally, you also know that country. So a lot of the people that were recruited, you know, for France were French or part French. Um, but in fact, you know, if you look just, just at the people that served in France, yeah. of the women that served there, they came from 13 different nations, including Germany. Because, of course, we had German Jewish female special agents who went in, you know, Russia and Chile and uh, all sorts of nations. Um, and, and, you know, they're incredibly diverse. I suppose the commonalities are language skills and a skill, uh, the knowledge of the country to which you're going to be posted. You know, skills in, in being fairly independent, a creative thinker, organisational skills and then abilities in very specific skills that both men and women were trained in. That might be wireless transmitting or codes and ciphers or all sorts of things so um there are those things and a lot of the women didn't volunteer they were recruited through the uh, auxiliary services so people like Nora Iniat Khan yeah. she was already working with the WAF and she was particularly brilliant at wireless transmissions she was very accurate and very fast and they had a desperate need for wireless transmitters inside Occupy France so that's why they brought her over um, in fact she wasn't so skilled at some of the other courses but that skill saw her through some of the others, like Christina Scarbeck, did actually volunteer. Well, she didn't so much volunteer. She demanded to be taken <laughs> on. And that was very early on in the war. I mean, this is still in 1939. She was overseas. She was actually in Southern Africa with her second husband at that point when um, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, marking the start of the Second World War. And they got back to Britain before the end of the war. He went off to serve 
with the Polish forces that have managed to get out and were regrouping in France. Mm-hmm. And I think he expected her to have a couple of cocktails in, uh, in London and sit out the war there. But within days, she is banging on the supposedly secret door of the British Secret Services and demanding to be taken on. And they, you know, they would have been all men in there. And they just looked at her like, well, first of all, you're not British. And then to, to work for the British Secret Services, you did, you know, that's the primary thing. And she was a Polish born woman. And secondly, she's female. You know, there were no women in this role at that point. And in mm. fact, they later took on these women, partly because they had the incredible example of how much Christina Scarbeck achieved. And they took on other women about two years later, partly on that basis, but partly, you know, driven by the, the needs of war as well. And so she had everything they needed, which was the language skills. Yes, the knowledge of the country. But she also knew things like before the war, she used to ski across the borders Um, through the high mountains and after a while she got bored doing that and left all the men behind and started skiing smuggling cigarettes across the borders she didn't even smoke she just did it for the thrill for the kicks of it but it meant that she knew the smuggling routes so she had uh, she had all the contacts as well and Britain of course was desperate to find out what was going on in the first occupied country in Europe and where the troop movements were and everything else so she had everything they needed and despite her being a woman despite her being Polish they took her on so what, what sort of training did they get and by who? Well, exactly the same as the men, you know, so they got um, they got sort of outward bound, I suppose we call it today, but fitness training, survival training. They went up to Scotland and went hiking and well, she didn't actually. She was sent out without that uh, initially. But this uh, later, most of the women went through the same courses. Um, they get all these special skills courses like the wireless transmitting and coding and so on. They also get trained in um arms, explosives, sabotage, all of that stuff. The course that Christina excelled in was called the silent killing course, which is killing um, just with a rope, a knife um, or your bare hands. Um, So these these courses, she was trained in all of that actually in North Africa in in, uh, Massingham, the base was called. They were trained in Morse and coding, in spycraft, following someone or shaking off someone if you're being followed breaking an entry stealing documents all of that kind of stuff um they were trained in parachuting you know christina scarbeck one of the few women to earn their wings by the way the women had to do one more jump to the men to earn their parachute wings and there doesn't seem to be a logical explanation for this but i've heard it discussed that it's just one way of keeping it out of the books that the women were doing this work you know they they had to do one more operational jump to get their wings but they would drop before they had to do that jump so it's just another way of kind of Sorry, uh, so something I believe that Pearl Witherington banged on about for the yeah, exactly, best part exactly. of 40 years. Yeah. I, yeah. I was just about to say, I've wondered why she didn't when other SOE agents... Well, she was eventually given her... Yeah. yeah, she was eventually given her wings 70 years late, you know. Yes, I'm <laughs> ready. They were the, that was the award she was most proud of when she was decorated. They gave them... Um, all the men got military honours, but the women weren't allowed that because they hadn't been in the army. So they had to have civilian honours instead, the equivalents, but civilian honours. And Pearl Witherington rather fantastically said there was nothing remotely civil about the work I was undertaking. <laughs> so, I mean, all the way at all stages, they are treated differently. I should say, actually, there is there is a distinct superpower. There is something that they, you know, that made the women distinct from the men. And it wasn't their beauty. I mean, some of them were beautiful. Some of them weren't, yeah. you know, one of them in the plane overheard the pilot saying she looks like a plain vicar's wife. You know, great. She's about to be dropped behind service and they're still charging her for her looks. Yeah, um, thanks, 
Yeah, exactly. But you know, they, they were old, they were young, there were grandmothers. There's one that only had one leg, Virginia Hall. You know, the, there's, there's a full diversity of women. You really don't have to be beautiful to be a female special agent. And um, if you are attractive, of course, you can use that as, an, as another thing that you've got. But also it can be a disadvantage because if you have a memorable face, you're more likely to be picked up or recognised. So there's pros and cons even on that. Exactly. But there was something that distinguished all these women. And that was that they were female and that therefore, you know, women's superpower still today, to some extent, is that they tend to get overlooked. Mm. And so whereas particularly, you know, in France, after they brought in the service du travail obligaire, which was when they rounded up young men and sent them over to Germany or recruited them or forced them as forced laborers to work in the German war manufacturers. So creating airplanes or even just going working on the land in Germany to release uh, men to be German soldiers. That meant that there weren't many able-bodied men, young men, walking around occupied countries, particularly not in France. Uh, whereas women were traveling all over the country to, you know, keep the families together, to keep businesses going and so on, to go to market, to just survive. So women are traveling around and men are not. So they they kind of can go under the radar rather more. So that plays on the existing sort of sexism inherent in that women tended to be overlooked anyhow. Mm. And so you get these extra layers, women's superpower being that they are less visible than men. Yeah. And if they're there and they're not, then their presence there is not going to attract suspicion in the same way that the presence of able-bodied young 21 year old guy of fighting age and fitness, people are going to wonder what on earth he's up to. And what's more, yeah. why, why is he there? Whereas, you know, they're, they're not going to stand out as being suspicious within that environment. And that's... And that, that was really significant. And on top of that, there is just the general overlooking of women. So, you know, Christina Scarbett, there's um, accounts of her on the back of a motorbike during they get pulled over and they go through the man's pockets, they go through his bag and everything. She's just sitting on the side of the road, eating a bit of grass, waiting, and nobody pays him any heed. And then eventually they, you know, his fake papers work perfectly and off they go again. And she's, of course, got a load of hand grenades under some cheese sandwiches in her rucksack, but nobody bothered looking. You know, it's, it can be useful. Yeah, isn't the one, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll tell me who it was, but it was, um, it was somebody that was carrying a scar, uh, somebody that was carrying a map. And That's Christina up in the mountains. They had these maps of the terrain that were printed on silk, a bit like um, uh, one-time pads, which are coding things, which are random letters printed in lines on silk. And then they could hide them in their coats, whatever, and it wouldn't rustle if they're being tapped down because silk yeah. will just move with the fabric. But she had this silk map up in the mountains and uh, she unfortunately walked around the wrong side and was um, came into contact with some German soldiers. And, and she just shook this, this map out that was in her hands and tied her hair up with it and it just looked like a silk scarf and they didn't question her at all so yeah quick thinking as well a great attribute skill for all of these agents so their record speaks for itself throughout the war Uh, but having gone through all that how did those agents settle back into civilian life after the war well you know soe agents men men and women a lot of them a lot of them found it very difficult I mean not everyone and I don't think we should generalize ever I love the gray area I love all the diversity at every <laughs> point but a lot of them found it hard to return into civilian life so one of them a man called Francis Kermertz who's uh, one of the people whose lives Christina Scarbeck saved actually is the uncle of Michael Morpurgo and he's written a little children's book about this now which is wonderful that I think it was 20 of his friends had later committed suicide um, in the years after the war so 
it was hugely difficult for for all combatants actually to come back and if you look at sort of crime statistics and things it's all reflected in that but I think it was particularly hard for the women who often found that a lot of the doors were closed to them that weren't to their male colleagues some of the women like some of the fannies and the WAF were put on uh, courses some of them were sent to Italy to look at art it was like decompression chamber for them but the female special agents were never really recognised and they weren't given any support like that. And particularly, you know, Christina Scarpa is an example of this. So a lot of the men she worked by, I've seen a, a record, all the men's names and her own name on this list. And the men are all of them deployed in different places. So one of the men she worked with was a man who only had one leg and a prosthetic leg. Never stopped him. He became a parachute instructor at one point. Incredible man. And he was redeployed in a peacekeeping role in Germany in the post-war period in the British zone. Against Christina's name, it lists her language skills, all of her other skills. It says, and I quote, that she is exceptional, but perhaps not so good at admin work. They try to offer a few clerical jobs, a bit of secretarial work. This was not where her skill base lied. She hated all of that stuff. There's no point in her doing that. She wanted to be operational. And that was never an option for her. I mean, also, like the women, the men got extra allowances, like even pay. She wrote... Um, They've refused to pay me London allowances, danger pay, parachute pay, simply because I was not a man. So that's in the records. And then you find in these papers, she's trying to argue her case. You know, I'm I'm owed this back pay. I'm owed this and the other. And they, they send her cheery notes in between. They say things like, I hope you're being a good girl. You know, this is a mature woman who saved the lives of at least six of the men she worked with. You know, achievements are absolutely incredible. And this is how they're being treated by young men who hadn't even served at the time. So the last file note in the British, because she served directly for Britain, it's all held in queue in the archives, National Archives. And the last file note, and this is just quoting one line from a bigger document, but nevertheless, it says she is no longer wanted. This is a woman who put her life on the line for six years for the British Crown, and they just dumped her. So... I mean, yes, it was hard for everyone going back, but it was there were particular difficulties for the women. Yeah, and I suppose if you're trying to secure yourself a job after the war, your your war record is not something you can actually talk about at the time either, is it? Well, I mean, even if she, wow. she did on occasion, so she eventually, in fact, the British government refused to even give her British citizenship after the end of the war, and she was a Polish national, but she knew she couldn't go back to Poland, and the British government did actually as well, because at one point, I don't know if they told her this, but they traded her name for the name of an NKVD, a Soviet agent. So had she have gone back, she'd have you know, been arrested and shot. Uh, in fact, her brother, who had served in the resistance in Poland through the war, he died in the first years of the peace in a, in a communist jail in Poland. So she knew she couldn't return, but... Britain didn't give her, you know, they left her, she ended up the war in Cairo and they didn't give her any way to get back. So she eventually won British citizenship because Britain wanted to give her honours and she refused to accept them from a country who she had served that wouldn't even give her nationality at at the end of the war. Now, she was a fighter. She was going to win that battle. She won it. But it's not a battle she should have had to have been fighting at that point. So... I forgot what my question was. I'm just off on one. Sorry. (laughs) And this is what History Rage is all about. You said you couldn't do it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was really, it's like how, it's about them settling back into, well, back into civilian life. Yeah, I mean, well, eventually she did. And she did move back here. And uh, yeah, and, and she got works on passenger ships and things because that enabled her to travel and gave her some extent of freedom. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So the, the head, the captain of one of the ships she was working on in, before the war, she, she came first class from Southern Africa back to, to UK to volunteer. At the end of the war, she's a, a bathroom stewardess. She's cleaning up loos oh, on Lord. a passenger ship for the British. Anyhow, and she... She's told by the captain that anyone who served can wear their medals. And so the guys will get the medals out. And she has this row of medals that any general would be proud of. You know, she's got the oh, she's got the war medal. She's got a quad de guerre from France. She's got the George medal. She's got three different theatres of the war in which she served. And she's got mm-hmm. the OBE. So, I mean, it looks terrific. People don't believe it. You know, she's female. How is it possible? She looks a bit Jewish. Her mother was Jewish. Um, she, she's got a bit of an accent. They are merciless to her. They absolutely harass her. I think they think she's a fantasist or something. They cannot accept that these are actually her medals justifiably earned. And, uh, and so, so even when it does come out that she's had all this service, it just counts against her. That is, that's shameful. Appalling is... Not even. I, I got so angry in the archives. I, I did get a bit of a history rage on in in queue. In fact, they had to tell me to be quiet because I was humping, harumphing so much. So, yeah. <laughs> so how do you actually go about researching these topics, particularly ones that are by their very nature secret and possibly actively attempting to deceive the reader? What sort of sources and archive materials do you use? I mean, yeah, you're right. There are many, many layers of difficulties involved. I mean, first of all. Christina, special agent, secret agent. It's the word secret, isn't it? I mean, it it sort of says it. These were people who were trained not to leave a paper trail or who were very good at covering their tracks. And certainly when I started researching this book, there were only, I think, three known letters in Christina's hand. I'm glad to say there's about 12, 13 now, um, because I found a number more, which was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, her letters were wonderful. I always think of letters as being like the fossils of emotion, that intangible stuff that disappears. Otherwise, they're very good. Letters are very good for personality, but they're not particularly good for facts. You know, if you ask three different people to describe the same incident, you'll get three very different pictures. But still invaluable for us because I think books are, you know, a good biography should show someone's being as well as their doing, you know, their character as well as their achievements. So it was fantastic to find out a bit more about her like that. But yes, there are all sorts of problems because she was a secret agent, um, but I managed to get to the Freedom of Information Act and get papers out and, and a lot of research provided a lot more information that I wasn't expecting, which was wonderful. There's an extra layer because she was a woman and that adds difficulties to it. Like I was saying earlier, men's papers tend to get filed differently. There's more archival sources, but there is still, you know, she has a personal file in the in the British archives, but 
uh, a lot of stuff was deliberately hidden around her. So after she died, I mean, Christina came to a terrible, very dramatic and tragic early end after the war. And after her death, the, what, Andrew Kowalski, her one-legged lover, who I mentioned earlier, who was really her, the, the main man in her life and her, her sort of colleague in arms as well, he pulled together a group which he called the Committee to Protect the Reputation of Countess Christina Scarbeck. And basically because, I, I think it was from very honourable motives, because he felt, you know, Christina had a very active love life. And he felt that it would be, it damaged her reputation if somebody wanted to find out about her and all these stories came out. Although I think, you know, she was one of her many lovers and he later had other relationships. And, and many of the people whose lives she had saved, including Andrews, you know, they had been her lover as well. And several of them were married. So perhaps arguably there was more than one reputation at stake here. But in any case, let's even giving them the benefit of the doubt, I think. What the result, the net result was Mm. that they kept her stories hidden. And there was actually going to be a film in 19, uh, well, not long after 1952, when she when she died, when she was killed. And Churchill's daughter, who was an actress, Sarah Oliver, was going to play Christina in the lead role. Imagine that Winston Churchill's daughter playing his favourite spy. Um, But they couldn't make it because they didn't have enough information. Of course, all the files then, of course, were secret still and out of bounds. And it had to rely on the testimony of people who worked with her because Andrew and these men, six of them, had convened this committee to protect her reputation. It meant that the result was ultimately her story has been hidden and completely forgotten. And perhaps the world wasn't ready for her in 1952. I don't know. I imagine a lot of women would have wanted to hear that story. A lot of people would have wanted to hear that story then. But um, luckily, it is ready now. And so, you know, I've had a very good response to the book, which has been fantastic. So, yeah, so how did I go about finding the information? You're asking well, lots, lots of different things. You know, part of it is one of the biographers that I really admire is called Antonia Fraser. And she's got a wonderful phrase called optical research, which basically means going on holiday and trying to find out, you know, walk in the footsteps of these people and try and find yeah. out information in situ. And so I I did go out, I went out to France and I managed to track down two veterans who remembered her serving in the Battle of Vercors and interviewed them. And and of course, I went out to Poland, which was absolutely fantastic. I went to the archives there, had to get a special permit to go to the State Archives, National Institute of Remembrance and various other archives there. But I went out with a Polish friend of mine, Maciek, who very kindly drove and translated for me. And that was just wonderful. He managed to get the keys to her childhood house so we could go inside. And it was all falling down now, but we could go and look in the building, in the room that had been her bedroom. And uh, he managed to uncover things in old private archives. So we found her her first marriage certificate. She was married to a soft furnishings magnate. You kind of know that was never going to work, really. Mm. Um, we found her school reports. You know, she was pretty bright, but she was very unruly. And in fact, she went to a convent school where I've now been. And uh, she was expelled for, she was very bored one morning during prayers. They had to get up early and do prayers. And in winter, it was cold and dark. And then they had to have a bath with their clothes on because they weren't allowed to see their own bodies. And then they, then they could have breakfast. And it was a very tedious morning. So she tried to speed things up, holding her candle at prayers one day by setting fire to the priest's cassock. So um, that didn't <laughs> go down very well. So she was always this real, you know, firebrand yeah. woman. Anyhow, so we found out all this other sort of, information which actually each part is small but it's telling when it adds up together um then back in england you know the the british files she works with 
for Britain. So we've got her files there, but also I got in touch with the Special Forces Club and interviewed a number of people who remembered serving with her. One one man, absolutely fantastic man, I got in touch with. I, I put a note in there on their notice board in the club. And um, he emailed me later saying, yes, I, I knew Christine, but I didn't know her very well. But I just, you know, thank you for your polite note. I thought I should mention. So I said, well, you know, tell me more. And he said, well, she was a damn fine, good looking girl. And um, I saw her sitting around the pool at the, the recreation site. And this was in between missions. And um, I asked her out for lunch. I said, all right, lovely, fantastic. What do you have? Can you remember? Did she drink? Did she smoke? What did she talk about? So a few little things there. I said, well, what happened next? He said, no, nothing. I said, really? And he said, well, you know, we had dinner. And I said, oh, right, I, I see. And he said, no, you don't see. It didn't happen because he was engaged to someone else. And um, he didn't want what sometimes happens after dinner. But she did. He said she was very predatory following him around the pool so <laughs> you get all these fantastic stories and um, that really help to build her character up so you know interviews archives all sorts of uh, unofficial archives as well the places that you find when you actually go out and visit a place so all sorts of things and of course using the um I went to the freedom of information act because she didn't have children I could apply under the freedom of information act and managed to get out all the files that hadn't been released previously surrounding her murder. So that was court papers, police statements, witnesses, hospital files and the prison, um, the prison records as well. So um, one of the things there was I found there was a, a manila envelope in the archive and I took that out of the plastic wallet and these photographs fell out. And they were the crime scene photographs of her, at, you know, at the murder scene. Oh. And that was that was pretty heart wrenching, actually. That was pretty appalling. But it's important. I mean, I didn't reproduce those photographs in the yeah. book because I felt that she didn't give permission for that. Funny enough, a lot of the photographs are quite blurred because she's quite often in action. She's moving. But in these ones, she's absolutely still. You can see everything with clarity. But it's really clear that she's not there anymore, actually. She's gone. So, yes, lots of different sources. Thank you. Well, as well as Christine, you have covered uh, Hannah Reich, um, Melita von Stauffenberg, uh, Melita yes. Schiller, as, uh, as she was his maiden name in The Woman Who Flew for Hitler, and Eglin Jeb in The Woman Who Saved the Children. That's quite a diverse range of women. How do you go about finding who you're going to talk about and discovering these stories? Well, my first book was the Eglin Jeb, The Woman Who Saved the Children. I used to work at Save the Children, worked there for many years. So I came across, and I was just astounded, really, how little she is known or seemed to be known in the organisation. Researching her, I mean, she was just this absolutely astounding woman you know she she went out before the first of the Balkans and watched work trying to identify uh, crime scenes in what was then a civil conflict but which would rumble on to become the first world war she's incredibly courageous and um, she had all sorts of things she was arrested you know she was she was crossing every border she could find and I just believe that her story wasn't known that that there's one previous biography which was in 1962 or something which was quite a strange little book good on the childhood not so good at the rest of it so so you know, there is this rich seam of untold women's stories. And I'm a feminist. I feel these stories should be better told. But I also, as a feminist, feel I'm very capable of writing stories about men. But as it happens, so many women's stories haven't been told. It gives you this yeah. wonderful opportunity to look into a lot of issues. So that was how I came across um, Eglantine Jeb's story. And I wrote it evenings and weekends. It took about seven years. About halfway through, I thought I, I was going to write a terrible book. So I did an MA in um, social and cultural history to make sure I was doing a decent job. And um, eventually when it came out, it, it won the Daily Mail Prize for the Biographers Club Prize. And I fell off my chair. I couldn't believe it. I finally found something I can do. So I decided to carry on. 
And um, my agent said, well, you know, what's your interest? What are you can do next? I was like, well, I'd quite like to write about another woman. And I was quite interested in Polish history because I'd had this teaching experience in Poland and fell in love with the country a bit then. And he actually suggested Christina Scarbeck. And, and I said no, <laughs> foolishly, because I felt it was a bit like a blind date. I was being set up on. I wanted to find my own subject. Thank yeah. you. Um, but then I just did a bit of research into her and quickly fell in love with her like everyone does and was just astounded at how she's been misrepresented and so was very keen to write that book and that has done quite well it's under option they're all under option actually which is nice really hope one day one of them actually gets made but you know many a slip and um and then my publishers then were quite keen for me to do another book on some of the other female special agents but I didn't really want to do that because I am always trying to learn something myself. I'm trying to tell different stories. And it's not a competition between these women. They were all absolutely amazing. But I didn't want to do two books that were perhaps so comparable. I thought it'd be really interesting to look at the other side of the war and try and understand how it was that Hitler was able to corral so many resources, including including the human resources of his country. Yeah. And of course, the women were volunteers. They didn't have, they weren't conscripted. In fact, they they weren't really wanted in those roles. These two women, if they hadn't have been absolutely brilliant pilots, they wouldn't have been let anywhere near the Nazi, you know, incredibly progressive aircraft and very expensive aircraft. But they, they were needed for their skills. And so they were brought in actually as civilians. They weren't in the Luftwaffe. They were the only two female test pilots for the Nazi mm. regime. And why did these women volunteer to serve? What on earth was motivating them? I think that was a fascinating question. And at first I was looking at Hannah Reich, but she was a fanatical Nazi. This is part of her motivation. The other part was that she was a brilliant pilot and she wanted to fly the best, the newest, the most fascinating aircraft. And she did. You know, she flew a Gigant, which is a, a, yeah. a, a massive glider. It can take a, can take a tank inside it and then opens up so it can come juddering into action. Um, she flew, um, She flew the V1, you know. She actually, well, she flew, first of all, she flew the um, ME-163. So that, that's the Messerschmitt Comet. It's a, a rocket-powered yeah. plane. Then she flew the V-1 in a manned version. So basically, it's a prototype cruise missile that she was flying. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. She's, she's an incredible pilot. But she's also deeply racist, anti-Semitic, um, fanatical Nazi. She was. Yeah. Um, and then I came across Melissa von Stauffenberg. And her motivations could not have been more different. You know, in 1935, when the Nuremberg Laws come in, which enshrined Nazi racial policy into practice, she discovers that her father had been born Jewish. And the regime, in their rather unpleasant terminology, defined her as Mischling or, or sort of mixed blood. And she knows that she needs to save her family and herself. And the only way she can do this is through her skills. And she is a brilliant, not only test pilot, she tests the Stuka dive bombers, so losing consciousness sometimes doing these nose dives. Um, but she's also an aeronautical engineer, and she develops the Stuka dive bombers, the dive brakes, and the dive sites for these and various other pieces of high tech equipment. So they're remarkably important, and she's given she's offered honorary to equal to Aryan status. I mean, how hideous is that? But she refuses to accept it unless it's given to all her family. But later on in the war, as she begins to piece together what exactly is going on, as as was pieced together and was understood by a number of people inside Germany, not just the perpetrators. Um, when she realises what's happening, she can't support that regime. And so she gets involved in the biggest, or the most famous, let's say, attempt on Hitler's life, the, um, the Stauffenberg bomb plot. 
So these are very different women and looking at their motivations. I mean, they knew each other. They're the only two women flying from the same airfields. They're the only two female yeah. members of the Berlin Aero Club. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. They knew each other so well, but they loathed one another. Not surprisingly, <laughs> it gives this incredibly interesting and rich picture about what was going on inside Nazi Germany as well. So I don't know. So that's why I wrote about that one. I mean, because when I found out about it, I couldn't believe it. You know, I've got two women, just two women served as test pilots. One of them was a fanatical Nazi. The other one had Jewish heritage. One of them tried to save Hitler's life. The other one tried to kill him. I couldn't believe it. And nobody's written that story. So thank you very much. I did. Yeah. And thank you very much. You did. It's it's (laughs) absolutely storming story. Thank you. Um, so to start to wrap things up, um, I hear you're researching your new book at the moment. Um, have you got any idea of what I it's going am. to be about? I am. It's it's another woman in war. It's uh, a remarkable Polish woman called Elżbieta Zwatska, um, whose wartime nom de guerre was Zoe, so Agent Zoe, something like that. We don't have a title yet, but anyhow. And she was the only uh, female emissary for the commander-in-chief of the Polish resistance army. So the Polish resistance, the Polish underground, was the largest underground uh, force in Europe, absolutely massive. Um, And, of course, Poland being the first country invaded, I mean, they were on the front line immediately. You know, while Britain's going through the phony war, you have women and men and children, actually, on the front line in these cities. So women Mm. are being executed for ripping down posters in in September 39. It's, It's immediate um and so she is the the only female emissary to go from the commander chief of the resistance in warsaw all the way through nazi germany through france across the pyrenees in hiding on pierre laval's train all incredible journey to london where she reports to sikorsky the commander-in-chief and is also you know obviously of huge interest to mi6 and is interrogated by them and all the rest of it and then when she's offloaded this massive amount of information, she's got microfilms hidden inside keys, inside a cigarette lighter. She's memorized a load of stuff. When she downloads all this, they say, thank you very much. Off you go. You know, do you want to spend the rest of the war in Scotland or what? And she's like, oh, what are you talking about? I'm going back. No, no way. And uh, she becomes the only female member of the Polish special paratroopers. So Chika uh, Ciemny, the silent unseen. She's the only female member of the silent unseen. And she parachutes back to Warsaw, takes a key role in the Warsaw Uprising. And Well, I want to tell you the whole story, but yeah, that's yeah. far from the end. It's, I've just come, well, I came back a couple of months ago from, um, I did a research trip out in uh, Warsaw. And well, not just Warsaw, actually, Turun is her hometown, but all across Poland. And the stories, I mean, she lived a lot longer than any of my other women. And she was very active all her life. She's absolutely extraordinary. The book will mainly focus on the Second World War, but it does go into everything. And uh, so I met these guys and women who had worked alongside her and their stories. And some of them had recordings of her. Just, oh, my God, it's amazing. So, yeah, very excited about it. Sadly, it's all in Polish. I'm having to translate it all. (laughs) When can we look forward, hopefully, to to reading that? I don't know. 23 or 24. That will give me enough time to finish the book that I'm reading at the moment then, won't it? Oh, I hope, I hope you'll, you know, finish that one a bit quicker. Well, yes, because <laughs> I've got the You should be able I've to read them quicker than I can write them. That's my basic idea. Yeah. I'll work on that target. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Claire. That's, that's really opened our eyes, uh, given us a fair few things to think about, not least of which is how we portray women on uh, History Rage. So uh, 
thank you very much for coming on and for it's sharing pleasure, what really you. was some righteous anger. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. Cheers now. You're welcome. Well, if you'd like to know more about Claire's work, then you should start by reading all of her excellent books. And we're going to place links to all of those in the show notes below. And you can follow Claire on Twitter at Claire Molly. Again, a link we'll put in the show notes. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed these episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage, because we want to know what really gets up your nose. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Good Pods, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot to us when you do that. Thanks very much for listening. And from all of us at History Rage, bye-bye.